So this morning, as we've said a number of times, is about the principle of equanimity in action. And um, we're going to talk, Donald and I are going to do a shared talk this morning, so I'll speak a little on sort of the what is equanimity, and Donald will bring, well, we'll continue on and move it into the realm of action. We'll try to represent thesis, antithesis, <laughs> forget it. Um, so I'm going to begin with a game. So if you've played this game before, it's completely fine to play it again. Um, there's a man, and he's flying in an airplane. And he is um, afraid of flying. Is that good or bad? <laughs> All right, it could be both. Depends on where he's going. He's overcoming through. Okay, so that's good. Um, and but as he's sitting there, he's starting. He's feeling kind of nervous, especially when this announcement goes on over the the um, loudspeaker that. They're very concerned that one of the engines is out on the plane. Is that good or bad? Yeah, it's bad. Okay, and then, um, but then the good news is there's another engine, and that's fully, you know, has enough fuel, and it's it's great. So, is that good or bad? Good. Okay, and then um, they find out that the other engine is also is also about to go. Is that good or bad? That's bad. So then, um, so then they, uh, so then the stu- they make an announcement and they say, "Luckily, all of you have parachutes. Good or bad?" <laughs> okay, it's bad. Um, <laughs> who knows? And then there's guys. You're not making this easy. <laughs> Usually, I do this game with like ten year olds, and they go, "It's good. It's bad. It's good. It's bad." Um, and then, uh, okay, so then anyway, he, it turns out that this man is afraid of jumping and is afraid of heights, good or bad. So he, so, but he's willing to do and he's willing to be brave and overcome his fear. Good or bad. And so, um, so he jumps out of the airplane and he's, he's flying and everything seems to be going well, good or bad. Except for that his parachute won't open. But luckily, as he's falling, there is a haystack on the ground. Good or bad? <laughs> um, and it, that's good. <laughs> and then he goes and he lands, and there's a pitch. Wait, he doesn't land, but there's a pitchfork in the haystack. Good or bad? But he misses the pitchfork. But he misses the haystack. <laughs> okay, there is a point to this game. <laughs> the point of the game. <laughs> Not good. <laughs> the point of the game is um, to sit, root us squarely in duality just for a moment because um, life is this really funny, interesting interplay of the good, the bad and the ugly, as someone mentioned. <laughs> but life is this constant up and down. There's good, there's bad, there's good, there's medium, there's so-so, there's, but there's never, it never really feels like anything is always the same, you know. It's just not. It's like we know it from this. We know this from our lives. 
And um, I remember when I, one of the teachings of the Buddha that really made a huge impact on me was a teaching around the way that life has all these changes in it at all the time, just like this man jumping out of the airplane. Um, I was living in India and I was going to the teachings at a Tibetan Buddhist center and, um, in Dharamsala, where the Dalai Lama has, the, has his government in exile. And I was not so into the teachings, but I thought maybe it would be interesting. I, was an, I had been an activist. I was doing, um, doing a bunch of activism for Tibet at that point, and I was doing, involved with one of the world's worst acronyms for an organization, the Tibetan Alliance for the Liberation of T- Tibet, or something like that, a T-I-A-L-O-T. Anyway, and, um, and then I would go to these teachings, and one day I heard this teaching, and I remember we were, um, we were sitting... It was a 10-day retreat, and I was sitting in the... Um, I was trying to remember exactly. Anyway, I was sitting. It was quite cold, and we were all huddled up in our blankets, and it was about 6 in the morning, and there was this Tibetan nun who was an American woman giving teachings on what she called the four worldly dharmas. And she said that where there is pleasure, there will always be pain. Or let's just say it another way that their life is going to be a mixture of pleasure and pain. That there will always be a mixture of gain and loss, of fame and disrepute, and of praise and blame. And this is one of the core teachings of the Buddha, that um, you know there will always be... One cannot have pleasure all the time. There is sure to be pain. This is what happens with being in a human body. That if you gain something, it's going to be lost at some point or another. Maybe that thing isn't lost, but something else is lost. Something is taken from you. Something that we hold dear, we lose. Oftentimes we gain things that are really wonderful. Um, if we, people are famous and then they become unfamous. You know, it, it just, it happens all, I mean, look at those celebrities, those poor celebrities that were really famous in the 70s. <laughs> what happened to their careers? You know, and, um, and when there's praise, there is nobody who will ever be praised without receiving blame. All of us, at some time or another, will receive praise and blame. Even the Buddha was blamed, you know, this great, enlightened, compassionate, kind being. There were people that were actually out to get him, you know. So this is called the four worldly winds or the four truths about the world, that there's always going to be this interplay of, of all of these eight dynamics and that you can't hold on to one because if you hold on to one, you're sure to suffer. We go seeking for the good one, right? We always want to be praised and we, want, we would prefer fame rather than blame. You know, we, would prefer, we would prefer pleasure rather than pain. But the more we try to seek after it, the more we're going to suffer because it changes. And we often don't, we don't live from that place of knowing that. We live from a place of thinking that if something is good, it's going to stay. And I remember when I heard this teaching that I just kind of, my mind was blown. It, it was like when I heard the part about praise and blame, I realized that this is the way my, my life had been operating up until then. That I had been madly seeking praise and running away from blame 
and that it was like this underlying condition and I had no control over it and it was horrifying and wonderful to see that in that moment I really remembered I mean it was really the pivotal moment for me coming into my Buddhist practice where I just went I just went oh this explains my life and then the next teaching that came on top of that was but there is um, there is a way there is a way to navigate the haystack and that is the way of equanimity so equanimity is the teaching on the balance of mind the evenness of mind um, usually it's translated as even-mindedness balance um, it's um, it's a quality that all of us may have naturally to one degree or another. So again, like all of the spiritual qualities we've mentioned, the loving kindness and determination and generosity and all these qualities, we all have it to a certain degree. And some of us are, you know, pretty relaxed and, and things, I mean, it just, it, sometimes it's, hmm, what am I trying to say? Sometimes equanimity just comes quite naturally and sometimes you might even be surprised you may be in a situation that's very high stress and you still feel quite equanimous a friend of mine was just in a car accident and um, he was he was going through a some someone ran a red light and smashed the car and his head went right up into the windshield he has a very hard head because he was he was okay but he said the most incredible thing happened was he became extremely calm and he just he just he felt the pain and it was like oh boom car smashing head hitting the boom and he he was really shocked that in that moment and, and now we all said well maybe you went into shock right <laughs> which is possible but it just it just points to that equanimity can arise from within us at any time and some of us may have a natural tendency to it and it's great I mean it's it's a lovely quality a quality of evenness a mind that's not disturbed a mind that can um, be with gain and loss and praise and blame and pleasant and unpleasant and just sort of sit there like a mountain. Like, okay. And it doesn't mean that the mind isn't experiencing things or feeling the intensity of the sadness when there is loss. But that it's, it's almost like one, one lives fully in the experience and at the same time there's a sense of knowing almost like it's all okay it's very deep and very difficult and when you've touched it you know it (laughs) you just you know it Um, there's a story that speaks to this when uh, from one of the there was a monk practicing with Ajahn Chah who was a Buddha famous Buddhist teacher in Thailand and he was this really amazing kind of enlightened master and this monk was a Western guy living in Asia, practicing, practicing there. And he was having a really hard time because he was in this monastery, and it was really noisy. And he wanted some. He, he just felt like um, he couldn't practice. So he asked Ajahn Chah, his teacher, "May I go to, may I go to um, a, a cave and practice?" And Ajahn Chah said, "Okay." So he sent him off, and um, he went in, and it was around Christmas time and he was in the cave and it wasn't too far from the village and what started to happen was that the village started playing Christmas music (laughs) 
entire, for those of you who have been in Asia, you know, there's sort of an affection for Western music in, in various parts there. And, um, and so he was listening, and there was Frosty the Snowman going, Frosty the Snowman, Frosty the Snowman. And he's there trying to be this good monk and trying to practice, and all he's hearing is Frosty the Snowman and then Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And, and he's just completely, completely getting more and more agitated. And here he is trying to have his special, sacred, enlightenment time in the cave. And then he gets dysentery, and it's really, really bad. And he's just in this horrible state, and... Um, Finally, uh, he ends up in the hospital, and his teacher comes to visit him there. And he says, he, 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 teacher asked him what happened. He said, oh, I had the most horrible time. You know, I went to be quiet. I went to have all... It. He goes on and on, tells the story. There was this music, and then I got sick. And, da, da, and then he just says, things shouldn't be this way. <laughs> and the teacher looked at him and said, if they shouldn't be this way, they wouldn't be this way. And he would, you know, you can imagine the impact. Now, as activists, that's a really hard thing to hear. I know it was for me. When I heard this story, there was like this sense of, there was both this sense of like, oh, you know, like a settling that happened. And then, wait a minute, but there's injustice. And look at the way the planet is. Okay, this is the paradox of equanimity, of still having that strength and passion for the world and yet this deep sense if things shouldn't be this way they wouldn't be this way anyway we're going to talk about this you can you can all feel triggered right now as i say this (laughs) (laughs) let me go in a little just a little bit more um not just a little bit more some more about equanimity and the way that we can develop it and how it comes about and just to say also that equanimity has all these different degrees and qualities of it. And, um, and when we, sometimes when we're meditating, we might touch into it just a little bit. Like, oh, I'm feeling, I'm feeling equanimous. Oh, yeah, my knee hurts. Or I'm having the nasal drip. And it's just nasal drip. Or my pain, I'm having a little pain. Or whatever it is. And there's this sense of being with. That's it. Or... Um, we might also be, um, you know, I've had times where I've been meditating, very deep in meditation, and I remember once I was meditating, and there was this, I don't know, they were digging up the road nearby, and the sound was excruciatingly loud and painful. And, and I was just like, oh, there's sound. I mean, it was some of the loudest sound I've ever experienced, especially when you get really quiet when you're meditating, but it was like drilling and hammering and bulldozer and that beeping noise, and I was just like, oh, hearing, hearing, hearing. Like, I was just, and it wasn't like I was disconnected or, no, I just, it was just sound arising, and the mind was in a deep state of calm and and peace and balance. When you touch into, when, as Donald was alluding to before, the, when equanimity grows and develop, develops, when it becomes a really, really sort of what we call high equanimity, it's actually the sweetest taste the mind can imagine. And just for a moment, imagine a mind that is so, mm, so balanced that no matter what touches it, it's like Teflon, it just kind of goes off. It's so sweet. So we can develop equanimity in a lot of different ways. 
And um, Donald's going to talk in a little bit about what it's not, equanimity is not, because that's important, because it's easy to get really confused around this and just say, or maybe this is equanimity and that's equanimity. But let's just say, I'll just give you some, uh, some ways of making equanimity come into your life and into your practice. The first is uh, remembering, you brought this up earlier, Rabbi Ojo, um, the, the remembering change. So if we, if we remember that silly story I used in the very beginning, it just changed, it changed, it changed. And this is our life, changing all the time. And so there is nothing that we're experiencing now that um, is from... Right, there's nothing that we have experienced that we're still experiencing in this moment. You know, all that grief, let's say you were really, really angry or sad or something, where is it now? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's not... It's, Sure, there's ways it's carried and there's memory, but things change all the time. Our bodies change, our cells change, our, our emotions change, our thoughts change. When we remember, when we can really pull on that memory of change, it can help us remind us to be equanimous. That's just one little tool. Another thing is actually setting the mind, having the intention to be equanimous, committing to it. Like, I'm really... When you're in the midst of a really difficult situation, can you come back to the breath? Can you come back to yourself and say, okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to practice equanimity. I may not be successful at all, but I'm going to try to practice it and see what happens. Through the meditation practice, we can develop it. We can develop it with, um, with the sitting practice. I'll talk about that in a minute. But we can also develop it because we get insight into it. So I want to tell you a story that was a really profound moment for me in my meditation practice. Um, some of you know that I, was, I lived as a Buddhist nun in Burma for a year. This was about five years ago. And um, it, I was living in a little hut in the jungle, and it was really, really hard for me. It was very... Uh, I felt very lonely, and there, the, I didn't like the food, and it was really hot, and there were millions of snakes and spiders and scorpions and centipedes, and you know it was just icky. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not the most, um, I don't know. At the time when I first got there, for sure, I was more urban, you know, like I, I just wasn't so into bugs. And, um, but the thing that I, I had the hardest time with, believe it or not, was the mosquitoes. And I remember that, you know, I would try to do walking meditation at night and they just like hundreds and thousands of them would come out and attack me and I'd start crying, how can I do walking meditation? And I was just, I was really miserable for the first couple of months. And the turning point for me came after a certain point, but but first what what I was doing was I was trying to figure out ways of getting rid of the mosquitoes. So I spent a lot of time living in my little meditation hut, not meditating, but devising mosquito traps. So I would do things like um, I, I had some good ones. Seriously, so in the whole, the house has holes in the wall, and um, yeah, it's just the the construction is was bizarre to my mind. But anyway, so I would plug up all the holes with magazines and duct tape, and then I would start to sweat, and it would be unbearably hot. So I'd keep the mosquitoes out, but I would be sweating to death. So I'd take them off, and then and then I figured if I took this bucket of, of dirty lake water and I put it in the center of my room and let them all get attracted to it, and they would like go and land on it, and then. In the morning, I'd get up and there'd be about 50 mosquitoes, and I'd throw something over it and rush it out the door. But they'd all they'd all sort of stay on it, and 
and they'd all escape, and it was really bad. And then I discovered the best strategy, which was I um, turned out, I turned on the light, the ha- the porch light, and I turned off all the lights in my room, and I opened the window wide, and so they were attracted to the light. But I'd stand in front of the window, and I'd say, "Come and get me, come and get me," and they go flying at me, and then I'd jump out of the way, and they'd fly out the window. <laughs> and so I felt like a toreador. <laughs> And um, that worked. <laughs> that was actually my most successful strategy. I'm very proud of it. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, there was, a, uh, there was a point where it finally dawned on me where I realized, Diana, you know, you can, <laughs> you can build traps. You can, um, you can plug up holes. You can get, do all this, all this stuff. But there's always going to be another mosquito, You know, no matter what you do, there's always going to be another mosquito. And wouldn't it be a little more effective to have a mind that could be present with the mosquitoes rather than trying to get rid of them or change? Or it just, it just, it made a lot more sense. Like, oh, what if I could learn to be with the mosquitoes? And that was a real turning point for me. Now, I will say later on in the retreat. my my hut was so hot that I said to, I finally got it that I could move, you know. And I said, "Could I get another hut in a, in a shadier place?" And they said, "Yes." So sometimes there's a point where you just you're just so it's so unbearably hot, or there's so many mosquitoes that you might want to move. But then there's also the practice of being with the mosquitoes and having a mind that has the capacity to be with what's arising. And really, this is the spirit of equanimity. The spirit of developing a mind that can be with whatever is present. And um, from that place of presence and balance that we know that we act on behalf of justice and truth and compassion. So it's not cut off from our actions and Donald's going to explore that side of it a bit more closely. Thanks, Diana. Um, just want to start by um, sort of uh, reaffirming the point that um, cultivating equanimity is a practice. It's not so much that we're asked, you over there, be equanimous. And if you're not equanimous, you're spiritually bad. It's really more that um, equanimity is something that can be cultivated. And the you know, in terms of the mindfulness practice, the core, uh, the quality of equanimity is cultivated when we learn how to be present with the whole range of experiences that we have. And that's a very, very powerful way that equanimity gets developed, when we can actually be present with things that are difficult, when we can be present with things that are wonderful and pleasant without grabbing hold of them or engaging in fantasy or whatever. So I think it's just important to remember at the beginning that all of this, all of what we're saying is in the context of developing this quality and finding uh, ways to develop equanimity. So what I want to talk about some are the ways that um, equanimity appears um, in forms that, uh, in its mature form. Also, I want to talk about how um, we can confuse certain states for equanimity which are actually more perversions of equanimity. And it's a very important um, way to inquire in terms of social action. And then I want to really um, 
look at what I think is really the crucial, a crucial perspective, which is that the cultivation of equanimity, as we were exploring following uh, Sarah's question, is something that involves, in a way, holding a balance of both opening to the suffering and, and being able to act with energy and passion, and then also maintain balance at the same time. And, that, and so that's something, I think, which is really called of us, if that's the right um, grammar or semantics, called of us, called from us, uh, in our uh, work in the world, which is really to um, be able to maintain a creative tension between equanimity and an action. And I'll, and I'll explore that more. So I, I've been um, very moved and impressed by qualities of equanimity that I find in some of the people who are important to me. Um, I think if you think of many of the spiritually grounded um, activists or people who have really been tremendously active, you can see that quality of equanimity. You can see in Gandhi this incredible equanimity that he could, um, when things weren't going very well, at one point, um, things were not going very well with the movement towards independence. It was about 1930. There was a lot of pressure on Gandhi to act, to do this or that, to really uh, move uh, quickly. There was violence in the area. And Gandhi said, I'm not sure what to do. And he went to his ashram, rural ashram on the river, and he decided he would just sit and wait for the calling about what to do. You know, everyone was yelling around him, things were happening, and Gandhi sat and looked out, sat on his front porch and looked out at space for six weeks, basically. He said, I don't know what to do, but I'm confident that I will hear the call about what to do. After six weeks, he knew what to do. It was the origin of the Salt March that some of you know of, 1931, which is a turning point in the whole movement where they walked 250 miles to the sea and made salt against the, uh, the British ban on making salt and the monopoly of the British to make salt in a tropical climate. There's kind of equanimity there that's very intense that he could uh, just have that in himself. Or someone like Martin Luther King. Um, I, have the, I have, some of you know, the speech that he gave the night before he was assassinated. I just wanted to read part of that. This was the very evening before he was assassinated, 1968. <clears throat> I got into Memphis, and some began to talk about the threats that were out. What would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers? Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it doesn't matter with me now, because I've been to the mountaintop, and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any person. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. It's a very powerful equanimity that's totally in the midst of action. You know, or or the way that um, some of you know Gandhi when he was shot 
right as he was shot, the words, he was repeating the mantra, uh, Ram, or God, and it was right there, right at that very moment. You know, for someone like uh, Julia Butterfly Hill, who sat in that uh, tree, many, how many people know that story of Julia Butterfly Hill, who uh, lives in this area, and she, she sat for two years, what, 170 feet up in a redwood tree, about that, and sat and just was there alone often, even though she had a good support team, and was sitting in this tree and the winds would come. And one, she described one time where the winds were you know, 70 miles an hour and the tree was swaying back and forth and she was on a little platform 170 feet up. You know? And she was cultivating equanimity. You know? And when you hear her or read her, there's that, that's a very profound equanimity that's there in the midst of action. And I was, I was mentioning how in the context of the Buddhist teachings of equanimity, equanimity is not presented by itself, which I think is really, really important. It's presented in conjunction with the development of loving kindness or love, compassion, and joy. And they're taken to be a set, so they're taken to really be in balance with each other. And so you could say that uh, if we don't have those qualities of uh, joy and compassion and love connected with our equanimity or even sometimes in our equanimity, something's out of balance, you know. And we can really um, consider our equanimity practice as totally connected with the um, other three. And I think that's totally crucial for finding this way of holding the equanimity at the same time that we're, that we're acting. In the traditional teachings of these four qualities, which are called the uh, Brahma-vihara, I think I mentioned that in introducing metta, the divine abodes or the, the realms of the gods and goddesses, there's a wonderful teaching that uh, is called the teaching of the near enemies. That uh, then as now, we can see that uh, people can think that they're loving or compassionate or joyful or equanimous it can actually be a kind of masquerade. It can be a masquerade, a distortion of the true qualities. And so in the traditional teachings, it was said that um, something can look like loving kindness or love, but actually be kind of grasping and attached. You know, um, something can look like compassion, but it actually is more a kind of pity that's actually distanced and maybe even afraid of being with suffering. It can look like compassion. Or something can look like the third is the quality of joy and the joy of others, especially. And something can look like I'm being joyful about your success, but it actually can be kind of competitive or have a subtle tint of being competitive. The near enemy that's classically talked about in terms of uh, equanimity is indifference. Something can look like um, equanimity, but it has that kind of uh, cold-hearted quality that, that Sarah was referring to. It's, it actually is indifferent. It's distanced. It's um, kind of separate from the situation. It's, it's actually, um, I don't really care, and I think that I'm equanimous. I'm kind of distanced and you know, non-caring, and I think I'm 
kind of spiritually stable and equanimous, but it's actually more spiritually aloof, maybe. And as I've um, explored equanimity, and I have to say that uh, for different reasons, equanimity has been a favorite. When Diana and I were developing this list of 10 qualities, I don't actually remember this, but she keeps telling me this over and over again. (laughs) Uh, She said that at first, um, I thought that um, equanimity shouldn't be on the list of 10. Now, I have no memory of this, but she must be, she says she's right. (laughs) There's There's no tape recording. But but I, I trust that she was right. But in any case, since that time, I've totally fallen in love with equanimity. You know, and it's it's just this incredible, and, and particularly the kind that's really suffused with warmth and action. And it's something that really, to me, is um, gets at a lot of what we're trying to get at. And in my own um, work inquiring in equanimity, I actually have found another twelve near enemies. Uh-oh. Not just, not just one near enemy, but 12 other near enemies of equanimity. In other ways, and I'll, I'm not going to talk about all of them, but I'm just going to list them maybe, because they can give you a sense and maybe, maybe mention one or two of them. But there are ways that um, uh, it's very easy to look equanimous and to actually have some kind of distortion present. And I think they crop up in ourselves, and they're going to crop up in ourselves uh, very easily, particularly... Um, living to the extent that we live with some privilege, particularly. They're going to crop up very easily. So I thought I'd just mention these, um, these near enemies. And they kind of break down into, a few, into two basic categories. One of them is we can think we're equanimous, but we're actually afraid of being in touch with suffering. You know, that's, that's one of the broad categories. And I listed, and it's, it's also, um, and the other category is that we're really attached to the pleasant qualities of equanimity. And we're often also aversive to um, suffering. And these are all shot through with delusion. <laughs> so so th- these are what Diana was mentioning as these three poisons that, that we find, that we keep on looking in ourselves and working through the qualities of kind of compulsive grasping, compulsive aversion and pushing away, and then um, delusion, or the ways that we just are caught in, caught in our own um, inability to see clearly. So I think I'll just mention some of these and not actually talk too much about them, but just mention them to get the flavor. And the first one I had, which probably wouldn't have been quite there at the time of the Buddha, is, is, is understanding privilege. That pri- we can be extremely privileged you know, and live, whatever, in a part of town where we don't see certain problems, where things are, things are um, functioning well, where we don't come in contact with certain kinds of people. And we go, oh... I'm equanimous, I have a peaceful life, I'm a peaceful person, and it actually may be a product of privilege. You know, I think that's really important to know. And kind of related to that are the kind of near enemies of escapism. You know, we, can, we can really um, just not want to deal with things and escape, and that's, of course, incredibly prevalent these days. <laughs> but... You know, and, but we can think that, yeah, oh, I'm a balanced economist person, but I just actually, I don't want to deal with things. I don't want to deal with certain things. So linked with that are also a denial and delusion, complacency, resignation. Resignation 
you can look like it's equanimous, right? But you're actually giving up in a way and you think, oh yes, I'm peaceful. And it's not to say that sometimes we don't need to find balance by retreating, going to a retreat. My brother always asks me when I tell him I'm going on retreat, when are you going to advance? (laughs) But I... There are other ways of thinking about retreats that can also be a retreat. So. Uh, another, another way that we uh, have the near enemies appear is when we sort of acquiesce to injustice or acquiesce to oppression, thinking, oh, I'm... And sometimes it's because it's, it's hard, but that can be a kind of near enemy. We can actually acquiesce to oppression and think I'm equanimous. I think we have to look at all these things or, or numbness or even uh, moral insensitivity can, can kind of look like we're equanimous or some kind of uh, intellectualization. You know, I, uh, you know I'm, I'm really clear about what's happening but I actually don't let it touch me so much. You know? And that's, that's, a, that's a big danger these days. I kind of read the papers, I know what's happening but I actually am not touched so much and I can think I'm equanimous with my intellectualization of the way things are. Or when I have kind of a, I have equanimity, equanimity because I um, kind of have an airtight ideology. Everything comes together. Or even cynicism can be can kind of be a near enemy. So I think a lot of our practice is actually looking at our equanimity and seeing where these things appear, and and really looking for these qualities. You know, I think each of us probably on the balance between equanimity and acting and being immersed with caring and com- compassion. We, each of us probably will tend to err a little bit on one side or the other. Some of us will tend to, I think my tendency is to err on the side of equanimity, you know, to be a little more aloof or have that tendency, you know. And others of us will err on the side of uh, kind of being more on the caring side and just getting often, just getting knocked around, you know, torn apart in some ways, you know, and really get out of balance. And that's where we need to kind of cultivate what's on the other side. And I think that's a, that's a way to, to uh, consider this balance. So I think that really points me towards a way of um, considering equanimity in general, which is to think of it as, a, um, as part of a balance that involves that action. And can we hold at one time the ability to um, see things clearly and be open to the way things are and be non-reactive and also be touching suffering, working with our caring, and acting. You know? And how do, we, how do we hold those at the same time? They're hard to hold at the same time. You know? they're, hard to, they're hard to bring together. There's a way in which we um, have to have a kind of... Uh, what I like to call a kind of paradoxical balance. We bring things together that kind of we tend to want to separate. You know, we want to just be equanimous, you know, and kind of have all everything together and clear. Or we just want to act and be totally passionate and be all totally involved. And what's being called for here is to have both of them present, is to bring them together, is to bring the wisdom and compassion together. And there's a way in which what it's doing, and here I want to really uh, quote one of my mentors, Sylvia Borstein, 
it's a way of really, equanimity could be said to be a way of saying, I care, this is happening, it's hard, but this is part of human life, and I can learn to bear it. I can be with it, even if it's hard. You know, that I can be doing that, that we can kind of hold what's there. And one thing that I've, I've um, loved is the way that sometimes in the midst of uh, events or action, we develop kind of spontaneous equanimity practices. And I just kind of want to close by mentioning one of these. Um, about um, a little over 10 or 12 years ago, I visited the... Um, was a bird, yeah. Yeah, flew. I visited the, the former Soviet Union. And I eventually, um, my, all my ancestors came from the uh, former Soviet Union. And I actually was able to go to the villages where my grandparents had come from in Lithuania. And I brought back rocks from, from there. And it was a hard trip because the Soviet Union was still uh, operative at that time. And I had to get, I, I, I was um, in Moscow, and I eventually, uh, I taught some meditation retreats actually at a um, mental hospital. And I came, actually came to do that two years in a row and worked with people, worked with the staff, not the, not the patients. And it was very powerful. It was still the Soviet Union. Things were still very repressive. I heard those stories about people interested in meditation and yoga who had been in prisons or themselves sent to these mental hospitals. And I got an internal visa, and I went to um, I went to uh, Lithuania, and went to some of the villages, and very much went into the territory of the Holocaust, also because it was very much uh, present there. And right after I came back, just about two weeks after I came back, we were doing a one-week um, kind of training session. It was a Buddhist Peace Fellowship Summer Institute, and I was one of the organizers. And I came back and. Um, one morning we got the news that there had been a coup attempted in the Soviet Union. That there was, um, you remember that there was this period, period of opening and glasnost and so forth with Gorbachev and then the, the right wing was trying to um, basically close it down so they arrested Gorbachev and took him what off to um, Yalta was it? I believe, down in the Crimea, I believe, in the southern, southern part of Russia. And, you know, I had um, so many friends I got really close to being there, and it was, very, um, it was very intense to do that. And there were a lot of people. Um, um, Fran Macy, Joanna's husband, was at the... Uh, and Joanna, they were both at our gathering, and Fran had spent a lifetime of work in the Soviet Union. And so... We heard the news, and like totally spontaneously, within about um, three or four minutes, we just worked out something that we wanted to do to open to that um, reality. And so we just um, gathered the people together. We had about 150 people who were at this um, training, this gathering. And we um, just asked people to sit quietly for a while and then we just asked them, out of the silence, to name their friends that they knew who lived in the Soviet Union. 
we just did that for about um, 20 or 30 minutes and there were tears pretty much a lot of places and um, we kind of I think that's an equanimity practice we held the sorrow in a larger container we recognized the sorrow we opened to the sorrow and yet there was something that was also um, really kind of holding it in a strong way and sending sending energy and and seeing and there was a quality of warmth there was a quality of warmth with that kind of equanimity there was a lot of warmth and yet there was some there was a way of saying we want to hold this here and we want to hold it in a way which can um, express our love and concern and I think we've since used that practice we've used it sometimes versions of it in the base groups and uh, I used a version of it on the <clears throat> on the anniversary of 9/11 right here at Spirit Rock and the uh, we had many hundreds of people came for the anniversary and we used that same practice and it's a it's an equanimity practice. It's a way of saying, I can care deeply, and yet I can hold things with some balance. And I can see clearly and even have, and have that warmth come right through that balance. They don't have to be polarized. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.